Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and why it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that can impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deep dive into a financial planning topic so that you can understand some of the details a little bit better. And finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and you'll find a box on the home screen where you can type your question in. Then I'll get in contact with you, get any additional details that I need that would impact your situation, and then we'll craft an answer that can be educational for the listeners. So I really hope you do that. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update. I'm actually taping this show a couple of days earlier than average, so I don't want to talk about market data, but I've also been told that the market data section isn't people's favorite, so we're going to watch in January. I think there's going to be some changes coming. Instead, today, I want to talk about tracking the stock market and comparing it to your portfolio. So as of the end of the first week of, 20, of December of 2019, we've had a really great year in the stock market. Remember that the huge January rally was caused in large part by the decline that was occurring in the market a year ago right now. So December was a lousy month in the market because the government was shut down and there was a huge Chinese trade issue going on. So December 2018 was bad. A lot of January 2019 was simply making up for that ground. But even with that in mind, 2019 has been a great year in the stock market, and you may be looking at your returns in your money, and you're disappointed because you didn't do as well. Let me remind you of a couple of things that can impact your portfolio performance. First, and possibly most important, unless you have a tremendously aggressive all-stock portfolio, you shouldn't be comparing your returns to the Dow or the S&P 500 because those are stock indices. Historically, stocks perform better than bonds. You probably have some bond funds in your portfolio, or you might have some money market in your portfolio, or something else to give it some ballast ideally some stability, so that you don't have as much stock market risk. This is what you're calculating when you figure out your risk tolerance level, so that if you're just a moderate risk tolerance person, 
you're probably not going to be 100% in the stock market unless there's some other um, circumstance that you and your financial advisor have talked about. So when you look at how the market has done, you'll be disappointed nearly always. So what's important to review is a customized benchmark. Now, it doesn't have to be 100% letter perfect, but it would be nice to find a benchmark that has a stock bond blend similar to the stock bond blend in your portfolio. That will give you a much better idea of what a risk-adjusted portfolio looked like this year. There can be, it can get more granular. There can be other considerations that someone might say, oh, well, you need an international index and you need a domestic index. And that's all true, actually. But at least make sure that you are only looking at a benchmark that took the same level of risk roughly that you took. And don't be disappointed when your returns aren't just like the stock market returns, especially in a year like this. Now, if the market had a very bad year, you might look better. That's one reason why we manage the risk. Then you'd be really excited. But this year, I want you to remember that you're trying to meet your financial needs with your investment portfolio, and you've created a very specific path towards meeting those needs, and comparing the data to a raw benchmark probably isn't the correct way to go. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And if you're a regular listener of the show, or the podcast, this is a shameless plug to say if you like what you hear and would like to hear it again, it's Ask Peggy Doviak about your finances, and it's available in most places where you'd listen to your podcast. So feel free to listen again. If you have listened in the past, what you know is that I am a huge proponent of the fiduciary standard. So putting that in as much plain English as I can, that means that I believe that there should be a legal standard that anyone who helps you with your money should follow. And it's a very high standard. I believe that that person should put your interest ahead of theirs and their behavior should always be done in a way that thinks about you first. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't get compensated, everybody gets paid, but it does mean that the compensation should be transparent. You actually know what the person got paid for giving the advice. You also don't want a contest where the advisor is trying to win a cruise by putting you into mutual fund A rather than mutual fund B when the funds are similar, but you know, maybe the fees are higher in A. If the fees aren't, it's fine, but you don't want that external motivation of something that benefits the advisor. You're not going on the cruise, so it doesn't help you out at all. So the fiduciary um, rule has gone round and round over the last couple of years. I'm not going to summarize it all. Certainly you can go back and listen to old shows if you're interested, but it hasn't been really faring well on the national level. 
And as a result, states are beginning to step in and say, okay, fine. If the federal government isn't going to require a fiduciary standard, we are. And one of the early states that's really drawn a line in the sand is Massachusetts. And this standard would apply fiduciary conduct to broker-dealers, stockbrokers, agents, investment advisors, investment advisors, representatives. So an investment advisor is technically the firm, and the investment advisor representative is the person when dealing with clients. The only group that doesn't appear to be included in this rule is the insurance world. But if you're on just the financial side and you're working with a client, the fiduciary rule would apply to you. And it was signed off on by the Massachusetts Secretary of State, William Galvin, and he made the statement that he had seen what can go wrong when there isn't a fiduciary standard and how much bad can actually happen to a client when the financial professional isn't putting the client's interest first. In fact, it was a situation that happened to my mother where her financial professional wasn't putting her interest first is why I ended up changing careers from being a corporate trainer to being a financial planner. So I have a real firsthand, very long-term knowledge of this. Even when I didn't know what it was, I knew it wasn't right. So this is going to have a comment period now. I wouldn't be surprised to see it signed into law. Of course, some groups that are saying that this is going to make it very hard for certain business models to apply they're going to have to work some things out. I believe that it's possible to make things work in different business models, but I think that the fiduciary standard is critically important. Clients think there already is one. Clients believe their financial person is acting in their best interest already. So we really do need to put our money where our mouth is and have the industry doing what the client base believes is happening on the federal level, it's not going very well. I'm very happy to see Massachusetts taking these steps. I'll keep you in the loop. There's some other states that may be coming down the pike pretty soon. I'll share that information with you in future shows. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Today, we're going to talk about individual retirement accounts, or IRAs. And I want to talk about several components of IRAs. I have people who ask a lot of questions about this, so I want to try to help you understand some of the fine print. Let's start out at the very beginning. An IRA is a kind of account. So it's really the tax treatment around the IRA that makes it interesting. IRAs are tax-privileged accounts. They're privileged in different ways, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But it's an account type. So think of it like a coffee cup. 
And so imagine that you have your coffee cup and you use your coffee cup like I use mine to hold pens and pencils and highlighters and markets and markers and all of those fun things. So I can put any pencils I want to in my coffee cup, right? I can put pens, I, I can put pink markers and yellow markers. It doesn't change the nature of the coffee cup. So when someone asks you what the kind of account is, that's the coffee cup, that's the IRA. Those pens and pencils inside are the investments. Maybe they're mutual funds, maybe they're stocks, maybe they're bonds, it really doesn't matter what kind of investment vehicle it is, they're inside the IRA. So you're never actually invested in an IRA because that's just simply the tax treatment. You're invested in whatever the funds or the stocks or the bonds or what, whatever kinds of holdings you have, you're invested in that. And it's those pens and pencils and highlighters and markers that will determine the return on your account. There's some tweaking with the tax treatment causing different sorts of growth. You know, some growth might be pre-tax, some might be after-tax, but that's not what people are saying when they're making this mistake, when they're talking about me. They think it grows differently because it's an IRA. I'm saying it grows differently because of what you put inside of it. So start out knowing that your IRA is just a wrapper. The second thing to know about IRAs is they come in four different varieties. There's the traditional IRA that you can deduct your contributions from your taxes. There's a traditional IRA where you cannot deduct your contributions from your taxes. There's a spousal IRA where you can contribute money, but when you don't work, as long as you have a spouse who does. So maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and you're not working, well, you're working, you're working like crazy, but you're not earning any money. Your spouse, on the other hand, is providing the income for the household. The spousal IRA allows you to fund an IRA based off of your spouse's income. And then finally, the Roth IRA is funded in after-tax dollars and the growth is income tax-free. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about the deductible traditional IRA. This is the IRA that people think about most of the time. So you have, you open your IRA and you fund it with maybe as much money as you're allowed to fund that year. That's something I want you to check online to make sure that the numbers, since we're very close to the beginning of a new year and sometimes those numbers change, I don't want to put a number on the air and say, this is what you can fund. But it's going to be about $6,000. And if you're over the age of 50, you can put more money in than that. So that's the contribution you would make if you're funding a deductible traditional IRA, then your contribution is deducted from your taxable income. So if you need a tax deduction today, that deductible IRA is appealing. But be careful because you might not qualify for it. 
if you have a retirement plan at work or your spouse has a retirement plan at work, then you will have a certain amount of income that allows you to fund and deduct your IRA. But if you earn more than that, you can't take the deduction. So you want to be really careful that you keep up with how much money you guys are making to find out whether or not you can take the deduction because you'll really screw your taxes up if you deduct IRA contributions when you're not eligible. But assume they were, so now it's all funded in pre-tax dollars, and when you take distributions, then you pay ordinary income tax because that was pre-tax money. You, take, you pay ordinary income tax on any distributions that come out of it. You can change investments within the IRA. Remember, it's a coffee cup. So you could take a pencil out and you could put a pen in as long as you don't take cash. So if you liquidate the thing and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take this money out and I'm going to put it in my own pocket that's going to cause you an issue. But you can buy and sell securities all day long and not create a tax consequence. Just talk to your financial advisor. That's probably not what you're going to want to do. But if you want to trade, you can with no capital gains tax consequences. A non-deductible IRA is what people fund when they earn too much money to fund a deductible IRA, and usually when they earn too much money to fund a Roth. So with the non-deductible IRA, you put the money in, but you put it in an after-tax money, then the growth go grows tax-deferred. When you take distributions out, some of the distribution is the return of the money that you put in, and some of the distribution is the growth of those investments that's funded, that, that's um, taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. So the non-deductible traditional IRA, the money goes in after tax dollars, the growth is tax deferred, but then taxed at your income tax rate. People typically only fund these if they have to, and they fund them with the idea possibly of doing a Roth conversion later. That's going to be too much for this show. <laughs> we'll talk about Roth conversions on a different show. So that's your traditional IRAs, the two ways of handling it. Then you have your spousal IRA. And remember, that's when you don't have income, but your spouse does. You can fund a spousal IRA, but there is an income level threshold. And if you earn more than that, you can't fund the spousal IRA and take the deduction. Coincidentally, that income level threshold is the same as funding a Roth. So the amount of money you can earn and fund a spousal IRA is the same amount of money you can earn and fund a Roth. So let's talk about the Roth for a minute, because I think that's the second most popular kind of IRA. A Roth is funded in after-tax money, so you don't get a tax deduction today. You pay your taxes today, and you fund your Roth in after-tax dollars. Then there's income growth, and if the Roth IRA is open for five years, and you're older than 59 and a half, then any distributions 
are income tax free. That means that the growth is never taxed. When we're in an environment where the tax rates are so low right now, paying the tax today to avoid paying ordinary income tax in the future is appealing to some clients and their CPAs. There's many details here, so I want you to talk to your CPA and your certified financial planner practitioner. I think that it's worth a conversation if you want to save more money than you can in your company retirement plan, or maybe you don't have a company retirement plan, and that's very, very common, you need to be saving money for your retirement. One of these IRA options might work for you. Just get the information, get the details, and talk to your financial team. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question is really interesting and it leads to a lot of other things. Someone asked Peggy, you mentioned that standard homeowners policies have limits on the coverage for items like jewelry. Does that mean our policy might not cover a theft? And that's a really great question. I think that periodically, it's just wise to look at your homeowner's policy. Make sure what it covers, make sure what it doesn't cover, and look at all of the coverage limits. Let's talk about a couple of big issues that your homeowner's policy very probably doesn't cover at all. And that would be naturally occurring flood and earth movement. So a naturally occurring flood would happen in a hurricane or in heavy rains where river levels rose or lakes rose or some other form of weather-related water movement. The only coverage that you can typically get to cover that kind of flooding is put out by the government agency, FEMA. And so if you are in a flood-prone area, you want to contact FEMA Flood and look into possibly getting coverage. If you're within a flood plain, you probably have to carry coverage, especially if you have a mortgage. But even if you're close, you might consider it. I've seen places flooding recently that never used to flood before. And a FEMA flood policy for an area that isn't likely to flood is probably not going to be very expensive. It's at least something to consider if you choose not to do it. It's a much better idea than not thinking about it and wishing that you had. Earth movement is typically earthquakes or landslides. So if you're in an area that's prone to either of those, you may need to get a separate policy or a rider on your existing policy. I broadcast from Oklahoma and I've lived in Oklahoma for over 40 years at this point and we never used to have earthquakes. But then over the last few years, 
we suddenly started having earthquakes on a very regular basis, and most of us now have cracks in our walls, not bad cracks, but plaster cracks, that show that, yeah, the house moved a little bit on that one. Well, at the beginning, it was relatively easy to get a rider to attach to a traditional insurance policy that covered earthquakes. But that's become more complex recently as the cause of the earthquakes has come under more question. So it's very important to not only make sure that you have the coverage, but I want you to also make sure of what that coverage does and doesn't include. Because if it excludes earthquakes caused from specific events, and you think that's probably the cause of your earthquakes, then you need to talk to your insurance agent and come up with a solution. Today, in Oklahoma, it's more likely to need a separate earthquake policy altogether rather than just a rider. Now, they seem to have died out a little bit. You know, this is always a fluid-moving thing, and I know that not everybody who listens to this show and the podcast lives in Oklahoma. So that's why insurance having state-by-state regulation makes some sense. You need to talk to your agent who lives in your state and your area and find out what your options are to make sure that you're covered. You can also, like I said, have landslides. That's going to be a separate kind of coverage and earthquakes and floods. So outside of those lovely events, there's also limits on how much coverage your policy typically provides for different kinds of items that you own. So if you have an expensive collection of jewelry, like the person who asked this question, then you may need to get a rider to cover the jewelry. The limit for jewelry in your policy may be less than what your jewelry is actually worth. And jewelry is simply an example. There are many classifications of items that fall into an area where you may need a rider to make sure you have adequate coverage. Here's what I would do. I would begin by taking an inventory. It doesn't have to be an item-by-item inventory, but just walk through your house and look for the expensive stuff. Once you have the list of the expensive stuff, then you should pull out your homeowner's policy and see whether or not it's covered. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And if you're not sure, you need to call your agent because your agent can help you make sure that you actually have the coverage at the level that you think you do. The problem with starting with the policy is you'll forget about items that you own. Also remember that you may need separate coverage for different kinds of vehicles. So just inventory what you have first. I made that mistake. I completely forgot about something that I owned and it was like, oh yeah, we probably do need a rider for that. I didn't actually get it the idea when I looked at the homeowner's policy, I got the idea when I got the item out. And I I think about money stuff all the time. So if I missed something, it's very possible you've missed something too. If you haven't, that's great. 
If it's an item that you put a rider on a long time ago, you might get the item reappraised. Make sure that the coverage is still adequate. Remember that for your insurance company to provide additional coverage, you'll have to prove that the item is worth what you say it is. And there is no guarantee they're going to cover all of what you have. You may own items that are outside of the coverage. You may own items at a level that it's difficult to get the insurance. You may have to go a slightly different route. But for most of us, if we'll just take some action and pay attention and cover it, we're good. You know, it's an 80% fix. Then at least you know what the other 20% is so you can address it and take care of it so you don't have a shock. Well, again, I'm really amazed at how fast this show goes. I enjoyed talking to you today, and I look forward to talking to you next week. In the meantime, be prosperous. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money. <laughs>